Oh, it is so good to see you uh, this morning on this third Sunday of this Easter season. During the season, we are exploring uh, several texts from the book of Revelation together. And if you're with us online or present with us and you have a Bible, if you would turn with us today to the seventh chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 and then verses 9 through 17. And if you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand with me this morning in honor of the Lord's Word. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. They held back the earth's four winds so that no wind would blow against the earth, the sea, or any tree. I saw another angel coming up from the east, holding the seal of the living God. He cried out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to damage the earth and sea. He said, don't damage the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of those who serve our God. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. And then we get several verses that list all those tribes and 12,000 from each of those tribes. And then we pick it up at verse 9. And after this, I looked and there was a great crowd that no one could number. They were from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice, victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and always. Amen. Then one of the elders said to me, Who are these people wearing white robes? And where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he said to me, yes, these people have come out of great hardship. They have washed their robes and made them white in the Lamb's blood. This is the reason they are before God's throne. They worship him day and night in his temple, and the one seated on the throne will shelter them. They won't hunger or thirst anymore. No sun or scorching heat will beat down on them, because the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. He will lead them to the springs of life-giving water. And God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thanks be to God. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. So as we think for about seven weeks and kind of jump through Revelation in bits and pieces, last week we started in chapter 4, where the vision of Revelation, the major vision, really begins. And if you're with us, we thought about how here is John the Revelator on the Isle of Patmos in exile, thinking about the first century church. A lot of the apostles have been martyred. Here he is, separate from these churches in Asia that he's written to, worried about what their future means, worried about how, to live, how they will live faithfully in this ever-present power of the Roman Empire. And he has this vision, and in chapter 4, like Lucy going through the wardrobe into Narnia, he steps into the throne room of the kingdom of God that is all around us. And he steps in, and he sees the 24 elders, the whole church, the old covenant, the 12 
uh, tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, the representation of the entire church, worshiping around the throne, four creatures that seem to represent all the creatures of the earth, all of creation, worshiping the one who is on the throne. I, I just love that. I hope that you got last week this idea that, that even in the midst of all of the chaos that we just lifted up in prayer, all of the challenges and difficulties of our life, if we were to step into the throne room this morning, they are not panicking. There is not scurrying to and fro and chaos. But the one who is seated on the throne is drawing all things to God's glorious conclusion. And there's worship going on. In the fifth chapter, there is a, a scroll in the hand of the one seated on the throne. It has seven seals. Again, we'll have to think about some images and what they perhaps represent in the first century. I think this one's easy. The scroll is that scroll of history that... And the question is, who can unroll that scroll? Who can get the world to go in the direction that God intends and desires for it to go? If you've been watching the news, you have to wonder, where is this going? Can God bring this all to God's purposes? And, and the revelator weeps, and we should lament and weep often for the sense that there is nobody, there is no politician, no political system, there is no nation, there is no might, there is no economic structure that can bring all things to God's glorious conclusion. And so he weeps because no one is found who can unroll the scroll and undo the seals. But an elder says to him, stop weeping. Here's some Kleenex. Blow your nose. For there is one who is worthy, lion of the tribe of Judah. He has conquered and he is worthy and he can undo the seals and he can unroll the scroll. As we'll see again this morning, the revelator hears the lion of the tribe of Judah, but this is so important. As he looks, he sees a lamb that has been slain, standing victorious. And the lamb is worthy, the embodiment of Christ, the crucified and resurrected one. Christ who reveals the self-giving, self-emptying love of God that's drawing all things to its glorious conclusion. He is worthy and he can draw us to God's purposes. Thanks be to God. We skip chapter 6, but I want to talk about it just a little bit. So in the 6th chapter, the seals begin to open and the scroll begins to be unfurled. We'll see cycles of sevens. Um, the revelator loves sevens, the number of completion. And so we get seven seals, later we'll get seven trumpets, and then we'll get seven bowls. Often they follow a pattern like this. There's four of them, and then there's two of them, and if you're good at math, then there's one of them. Four and two and one. The first four seals are opened, and out of the seals comes this vision of four horses. And I think I have an image this morning to help me. But the four horses, oftentimes thought of as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, come out of the four seals. One of the things we'll come back to again and again is I'm convinced one of the best ways to think about the book of Revelation is to think of it as a kind of mural that the revelator is painting, but the paints that the revelator is using is actually the language of the prophets and the language of the Old Testament scriptures. And so if you're interested sometime this week, go read Zechariah, the sixth chapter, where Zechariah has a vision of four chariots and they have different colored horses drawing them, the same colors that the revelator uses here. And it appears that the revelator's grabbing, if you will, the colors of Zechariah and beginning to paint this vision of these four horses. Now, this is one of those places where we have to kind of guess at what maybe these four horses mean. 
But I would argue uh, with a number of biblical scholars that I deeply respect who, who have studied Revelation, that it is likely that what these four horses represent are places where we often find security, but where we are warned that our security is not as secure as we think it is. The Revelator is deeply concerned that people are being drawn into places of security and that, I'll use the language of empire, the empire of first century Rome, the empire that people, that the people of God always live in is trying to squeeze us into its mold. It's trying to get us to trust it. It's trying to get us to find its security in all the places that it finds security. If I could take a tangent just a minute, and we'll get back to the four horses. I do think there's a frequent tension in the scripture between security and trust in God. And it's not always very easy to discern the two. Uh, in the Old Testament, David and Solomon want to build a temple. David calls it this, a permanent resting place for the ark of God. It's interesting when you read those texts, you would think that God would just be delighted that he's going to get a really nice building to have the ark in. But God kind of says to David, who asked you for that anyway? And there's this, these texts that seem to imply that God kind of liked the old tabernacle, the old tent where the ark used to dwell. So that if he wanted to, God could say, hey, let's go. Fold up the tent. Put the poles in the ark. Yeah, hey, let's go. You know the problem with that? I love uh, forgive me, Caleb, somewhere. Um, I love to tell this story about Caleb. I've told it to you before, but, but when we moved to Oklahoma, Caleb wasn't very excited about it, which some people who move from California to Oklahoma find that they're not very excited about it, but uh, Caleb was not very excited about it. All apologies to my friends. But I picked him up from school one day, and I said, Caleb, how was school today? He goes, oh, it's fine, you know. And then just out of the blue, he said, Dad, I've decided I don't want to go to heaven. And I said to him, Caleb, some people have choices. You do not. And so I, for the next four or five stoplights, I just preached them all my best sermons on heaven, right? I said, you got to get there. Like your great-grandparents are there. Your grandparents will be there someday. Mom and I will be there. You just have to get there, Caleb. All right, you have to get there. He goes, fine, 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 Dad. I'll go to heaven. <laughs> so I just didn't want to have to move again, right? So that, uh, <laughs> that there's this part of us that deeply desires security. And this is what David wants. David wants a secure empire where God is in the middle, and we can say, in Yahweh we trust, and we can not have to move again. The problem, though, is that what David thinks he is finding security in is not actually God. But he's actually finding security in chariots and horses and this massive economy that he has. So it's one thing to trust in God. It's another thing to trust in all these trappings that are actually giving you the security. And so we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus encounters, for example, the rich young ruler and says, here's the thing you lack, sell everything. Let's, let's have a little experiment. Where's your trust actually found? Sell it all and come and follow me. But he leaves sad because in that moment he realizes, oh, actually, my hope is built in nothing less than the economy and everything that I have in my bank account. So here come these four horses. The white horse is likely an image of a group of people called the Parthians. They're enemies at the gate, at the, the edges of the Roman Empire, that Rome three times in a couple of centuries tried to go to war with, only to find themselves unsuccessful. 
which is so strange because the Romans were so powerful. They could put together legions of soldiers and all this military armor and might and chariots and just go march out and conquer everybody. But here's the problem. The Parthians were good at two things, riding horses and shooting arrows while they were riding. And it's really easy to conquer somebody who's stuck in one place. It's another thing to conquer somebody who's riding all the time and shooting you while they're riding. And so what they found was that they couldn't conquer them because they fought a kind of warfare that Rome just simply could not fight. And it's a reminder, and we could talk about all these moments in history, including our own moment right now, where a massive military power thinks they are in control only to find there's people who don't fight wars like we do, and they're really hard to conquer. And there's this reminder that Rome, as powerful as you think you are, there will always be outsiders at the gate, barbarians at the gates, if you will, who will always be a source of threat, a source of terror. The second horse is the red horse. Um, It's a, a horse of violence, of rioting, of bloodshed. Many scholars think in the same way the white horse is about folks on the outside, the red horse is about forces on the inside. So empires, in order to get people to do what they want them to do, always are coercive and threaten you if you don't fit into the system. And in every empire, then, there are people for whom the empire works, and there are people for whom the empire doesn't work. And when it doesn't work for you, oftentimes it gets very frustrating, and that leads to revolt, and sometimes violent revolt. Again, in Roman history, even uh, thinking about crucifixion, Romans crucified so many hundreds and thousands of people or put down subversive activity in the empire as a way to try to control hundreds of thousands of people killed over just a few centuries from within the empire because they were threats, because the empire was so oppressive to them. And so the horse is a reminder that sometimes there are forces on the outside, but sometimes there are also forces on the inside that as much as the empire thinks they are in control, they are not. The black horse is the black horse of famine. Every once in a while, I know we hate it, but maybe it's good for us that there's a big economic downturn. We're worried right now, as much as I didn't like to see the rain today, could the spring finally come? I know how badly we need it. For if we go too long without water, we're in serious trouble like the days of Joseph and Pharaoh, if you have seven years of famine, the whole world is thrown into chaos. And as much as Rome likes to think they're in control, the revelator seems to be saying all it would take is a couple of years without rain. And let's see how control Rome is. The fourth horse, the the horse we should appreciate in our current moment, is the horse of plague, of death. It wasn't unusual in the first century for a plague to come around that Rome didn't understand and couldn't control that would devastate a vast portion of the population. What would it be like to be in a time when a virus breaks out that just doesn't seem to be in control and causes everything to shut down for a while? What would that be like? Hmm. All the pastors would be saying, they didn't teach us how to deal with pandemics and seminaries. Uh, And as devastating and as scary as that can be, all of these serve in Revelation as a reminder, all of those places we think are secure aren't as secure as we think they are. 
And so where is your hope found? The fifth and sixth seals. So those were the four. Now we go to the two. The fifth and sixth seals open. And very typically, what happens is a contrast of two things. In the fifth seal, we see, and here's another picture. That's plenty of that. Um, We see the souls of the martyrs, the souls of the saints, underneath the altar in the throne room, crying out to God. Again, in the language of the Old Testament, Psalm 79, crying out to God, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will these systems of injustice continue? How long until you bring justice? How long until you make vindication for us, O God? And then when the sixth seal opens, God responds to those prayers and begins to bring judgment upon the earth. It's really interesting if I had a whiteboard today, we would kind of draw on it that, again, the revelator loves seven, and there's seven things that happen. The earth shakes, winds come, rains come, lightning comes. There's seven different natural acts that bring judgment, and then there's seven groups of people who run and try to find a place to hide. Those who are secure and brought oppression are now the ones whose lives have been turned over. Now, if you're still with me, which may be a big if, if you're still with me, This is one of the challenges of Revelation. There's very little gray space in the Revelator's imagination. For the Revelator, we either find ourselves in the places of good, or we find ourselves in the places of evil. We either find ourselves with the martyrs and the oppressed, or we find ourselves with those who find their security in the wrong place and bring oppression. It's good and evil, light and dark, As we'll see in just a moment, beastliness and lamb, empire and kingdom. There's very little room in the center. But the sixth seal reminds the saints that those who have been oppressed will be vindicated and those who think they are secure are not. Now here's the deal. Now we get to chapter 7 for this morning. The chapter opens, interestingly, with four angels holding a sheet that's kind of the four corners of the world, if you will. In the first century, probably they thought the earth was flat, and so it's this image that all of creation is being held by these angels. And here's the thing, the seventh seal is supposed to open. And in our imagination, we probably think when the seventh seal is open, it's that moment where God says, let them have it! And they right? These angels just release all these winds and... Here it comes, right? The scary part. Here's what Revelation does over and over again. Just when we think we've gotten to the end, there's a break in the action. Six seals have opened. Now all of a sudden it's like, time out. Let's have a vision. Before that seventh seal is open, let's think about this. Before you unleash these winds, there's a question that ends at chapter 6. And here's the question. In the midst of all this chaos, who will stand? Who can stand? Chapter 7 is the answer to that question. Who can stand in the midst of the chaos and brokenness and upheaval of our world? Earlier, John heard lion, then saw lamb, In chapter 7, John hears that there's 144,000. 
all the tribes of Israel, 12, by the way, is a symbol, a number that oftentimes represents God's people. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. He hears there's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. I know that in our 21st century world, 144,000 is still a big number. If 144,000 people showed up to church, woo! Um, <laughs> but 144,000, we can kind of imagine a concert or sporting event where something, something close to that number would maybe show up. Parking would be a nightmare, but you know, 144,000. In the first century world, 144,000 is almost unthinkable. And so the revelator sees, oh my word, what God has done through the Lamb is completing all of Israel's story, and it's all coming to this glorious conclusion. And this is amazing. Here are these 144,000 who have been brought out of this brokenness, who God has held and redeemed and transformed, and they are now these people. And here's the interesting image. They bear on their heads the seal of the Lamb. Now hang with me. I know that those of us who were raised in the church, especially in the 70s and 80s, and got to see all the scary movies, think about Revelation oftentimes with this idea, what is the mark of the beast? If I had a nickel for every student who's asked me about the mark of the beast, I'd have $2.50 probably, somewhere in there. But I, a lot of money, more money than I have right now. But the mark of the beast, as a kid, forgive me, but I was very concerned about the mark of the beast. I'd read stuff that barcodes were kind of new when I was a kid. That's how old I am. And you would watch for the first time. I, I remember going to the grocery store where they had to punch in the cost, right? And then they got barcodes and you could just vroom, vroom, vroom. And I, you know, had been taught through those movies that at some point I'm going to get a barcode on my head. And after the groceries have passed through, then I do this. <laughs> and we're not getting that, Diane. Don't get it, right? It's the mark. I'm in serious trouble. I'm teasing that because I actually think it's quite silly. But, but every time I would read one of those books that obsessed about the mark of the beast, after I studied Revelation, I realized not a single one of them talked about the mark of the Lamb. The seal of the Lamb. Here are these people who are awaiting the seal of God on their forehead. Now let me tell you the two texts that I think this is referring to. The first is in Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. A famous text called by its Hebrew name, the Shema, which means to hear. The Shema text goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep these words I'm commanding you today. And here's the key. Write them on your head and on your hand. Now, probably the, the importance of writing it on our head and on our hand, first on our hand, so that we'll see it all the time. Everywhere we go, we'll constantly be reminded that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if we write it on our head, every time we look in a mirror, we'll see it. But here's the important part. Every time somebody sees us, they'll, they'll see it. So write it on your head and on your hand. Write it on your doorpost and gate. Talk about when you lie down, when you get up. Talk about with your children all the time. So the image of Deuteronomy is this, living in the empire, living in the world is really difficult and it will be easy for you to think these other gods are in charge, that the empire is the place to, of security. But hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so write it on your lives, make it a reflection of who you are. And the other text, unapologetically, is Exodus. 
where God, very similar to these plagues and these horsemen that have just happened, undoes Pharaoh's myth of power by doing all of these plagues, we get down to the very last one and we have this strange moment where God says, here's what I want you Israelites to do. Go have dinner. But it's going to be a weird dinner. Don't let the bread rise. Put on your traveling clothes. Keep your staff in your hand. This is a, you're going to eat it and beat it. Like this is going to be a fast meal. This is to go. Is this to dine in or to go? We're, we're to go. But we're going to take this. And here's what I want you to do. There's going to be a lamb at the center. And here's the weirdest part. And I have a picture of it, I think. Here's the weirdest part. I want you to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to mark the doorposts of your home with it. So that when judgment comes across the land, all of the people who have been marked by the blood of the lamb and their homes will be protected. They will stand, if you will, in this judgment. But those who have not been marked by that. And here's the moment. You, children of God, choose in this moment. You've seen Pharaoh still has power. I've tried to show you that it's not the power that Pharaoh thinks it is. But here's your moment. Are you going to side with that side, or are you going to find your hope, your trust, in the Lamb? And those who are marked by the Lamb will stand. And so here is this powerful image of those in Revelation, whose lives have been caught up, whose story has been fulfilled, it is not that they have been saved from trial and tribulation. They have gone through difficulties, and God has transformed them through those difficulties, but their life has been held by the grace of mercy of the Lamb, and their life reflects and shines everything about the Lamb. But here is so cool. The Revelator hears 144,000, but here's the big part. But then he turns and he sees one last picture. He turns and he sees a group that no one can count in a multitude from every tribe and nation and language who have been marked by the life of the Lamb. A people that no one can count who have become the people of the Lamb who again have not been saved from trial but have been transformed by God's grace through trial and it become the reflections of the Lamb, and they worship and give glory to the Lamb who is the center of their life. Here's what I want you to get. Part of me wishes that those scary books were right. Sometime, maybe in your lifetime, maybe in your grandkids' lifetimes, maybe way down the future, a kind of global cabal gets together and wants to put tattoos on all of our heads. And we could all say, oh, I'm not doing that. That would be so helpful. But if you're listening well today, the challenge of the text is that the marking of both the beast, as we'll see, and the marking of the lamb is much more subtle than that. I don't know if you ever, do you remember, I don't know if Disneyland still does this, but remember if you go to Disneyland or some concerts and things, if you left one park to go to the other, they would put a stamp on your hand, but you couldn't see it. Please stamp it. And then when you came back through the park, you'd have to put it under this ultraviolet or blue light, and you go, oh, I've been marked by the beast, by the, by the mouse, right? I've been, uh, 
you can see the marking, right? You've been marked by Goofy or Pluto or whoever. Um, Jasmine. Um, I think Revelation is inviting us to have both the grace and the blessing of the Spirit to run our lives under the ultraviolet light of Christ and to wonder, what does my life most reflect? Is it the beastliness of the world around us? And let me say, we'll see, being religious is no protection from being marked by beastliness. In fact, sometimes the most beastly things that happen in our world are done with the, under the guise and language of religiosity. This is this question, have I been marked by the beast or the lamb? God can give us the eyes to kind of see one way or the other. And again, I wish we were in some ways in a time that was as clear as maybe the first century was, where this was either standing with the martyrs or standing with the oppressors. The challenge sometimes in a 21st century world is, at least in our context, there are many around our world who are oppressed and martyred, but at least in Nampa, Idaho, sometimes it's very difficult to discern how we're being shaped and marked. <laughs> I preached a series on Revelation years ago in my first congregation in Richardson. One of my dear friends named Susie, she has the spiritual gift of retail. Um, after this series was over, she was so great. Every once in a while, she'd text me and say, Pastor Scott, I just wanted you to know I'm at the mall being marked by the beast. Um, <laughs> at least she knew. At least she knew what was, what was happening to her. Sometimes it's very difficult for us to know. But there's a story that came to mind from the Bible this week that, that kind of haunts me. It's a story that happens in the book of Genesis. Um, it's this moment, Abraham and his nephew Lot, they, their sheep, their herds, their families, they just get too big for one space. So Abraham takes Lot up onto a mountain and says, hey Lot, I'm going to let you go one direction or the other. And Lot looks one direction and it's rocky and arid and nothing's growing and the other side's green and lush. Only problem is Sodom and Gomorrah is down at the bottom of the hill. Lot doesn't even have to pray about it. He goes, I'm going that direction. And so Lot heads that direction, and the next time we see Lot, he and his family have moved very close to Sodom and Gomorrah. They, the text says they have pitched their tents outside of the walls of Sodom and Gomorrah. The next time we see Lot, he's no longer outside, he's inside, and he is bartering and selling and perhaps a leader within the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the messengers come and say to Lot, God is going to destroy these cities. And Lot says, let me get my family out. And let me get, I have these daughters and my wife, I want to get them out. But let me also, my, my daughters have been pledged to be married to these guys. Let me get my future son-in-laws out of the city. It's obviously tragic, the destruction of the cities. But the part of the story that always grabs me is Lot goes to his future son-in-laws and he says to them, come on, we've got to get out of this. Come on. This is all headed for destruction. We've got to get out of it. And in that moment, his son-in-laws laugh at him. Soren Kierkegaard has an old parable where he says, I fear the church is like the clown performing in the theater. 
who goes backstage and realizes the theater is on fire and comes out to tell everybody, the theater is on fire, the theater is on fire, and the audience thinks it's one more part of the act, and they all die laughing. These texts invite us not to escape the world, for there's no way to do that, and not to hide in some cloistered area, but to take seriously what does it mean for us to be shaped by the life of the Lamb in a world that wants to mark us with its values and its attitudes, and, and we are called to be those who radiate the life of the Lamb. It's why we come to this table this morning. And let me say, it's why I think you should come to worship regularly. Not just because it's not any fun when you're not here, which it is not. But because in a world that is constantly trying to squeeze us in our mold, you and I need regular participation of coming to the grace of God and allowing that blue light to be shown across our lives and for the means of grace, like the body and blood of our Lord, to be taken into us so that we can become what we eat. And by God's grace and mercy, be transformed to be reflections of who he is. For my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only lean on Jesus' name. Darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high, in every high and stormy hail, my anchor holds within the Almighty God, as we come to your table this morning, we ask for you to make this a means of grace. In this moment, may it be an ultraviolet light that exposes in us all of the places where we have found our security in the things that ultimately are not secure. It is a constant battle. It is a battle David fought. It's a battle Solomon fought. It's a battle the people of God in every generation have fought. And it is not that those things are necessarily bad or we can live outside of them. It is that if we are not careful, we will increasingly be shaped and marked and our values will be those things that ultimately, shockingly, bring out the most beastly aspects of who we are. And so we're here today to say worthy is the lamb that was slain and to mark our life with the life of the lamb. And so truly this morning, teach us 
again and again and again, make this a means of grace that allows us to truly understand what it means that on Christ the solid rock we stand. So make us what we eat today. Make us the body of Christ. Make us reflections of the Lamb. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some folks in just a moment are going to come and help us serve this morning. If you're new to us and wonder, Am I, can I participate in this? The answer is yes. All of those who know that they need the grace of God to shape and form, forgive, and transform their lives into a reflection of the Lamb, you are invited to partake in this this morning. As the trays come by, if you would hang on to the elements, I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing and we will partake of them together. But those who are going to help me serve, if you'll come at this time, uh, we'll begin to serve as the worship team leads us. Save the rest, why?
Would you hold the elements in front of you? Let me pray a prayer of blessing. Almighty God, we hold in our hands very common things, just bread and cup. In some ways, a reminder of our own commonness. For we confess today um, how shaped we are by sin and brokenness and how easily we become reflections of those things that are so opposed to the life you want us to have. But we hold in our hands very uncommon things, a means of grace, your presence in our lives. And so we do a very risky thing in this moment. We invite you to search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. We ask this to be a means of grace by which our sin is exposed and forgiven and in which new life and grace changes us to be reflections of what we eat. The Passover lamb, the crucified and resurrected Lord. And so make us what we eat today. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He raised it, gave thanks, blessed it and broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us take and eat it this morning in remembrance of him. When supper was over, he took the cup. He blessed it, said, this is my blood poured out for you to preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take and drink and be transformed by the mercy that has been extended to us by Christ. May it be so. May we trust and be the body of Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength. My song is cornerstone, is solid ground, is firm through the fiercest round and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when the fears are stilled, when strife besieges, my comforter, my all in all, here in the mud. Scorned by the ones he came to save. 
as we go this morning, I, I want to say, um, add to what Pastor Grant said earlier to all of you college students, um, we'll pray for you this week. Um, if you haven't studied yet, I'm not sure how much prayer will help, but we will pray for you. <laughs> Just kidding. For those of you uh, who are going away for the summer to come back, we'll, we'll keep a seat for you and uh, pray God's blessing upon you in these months of not just rest, but months where Christ will use you wherever you go. And to those of you who are graduating, our our prayer is not so much that all the things that you've now put in your head will help you get through life, but our prayer today is that you will have been so shaped by the life of Christ, so filled with the goodness of him, as you go into the world, 
You will be marked by his life. You'll be an instrument of grace in all the great places God takes you. And since it's finals week, here's a quiz for you. When all of the beastliness of our lives is exposed and forgiven and taken away, and we are marked with the holy love of Christ. Around here, we just have a word for that. Anybody? Sanctified, Sanctified life. All right. Okay. We'll let you come back next semester. That's why this benediction is for us. May the God of peace himself, may he mark your life. May he sanctify us through and through. May our soul, our spirit, our body, just every single aspect of who we are may be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, redeemed us, and is marking us, he is faithful. And he will not stop until he finishes his work in us. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.